is No Commons, and I'm your host, Janice Geary. I'm talking to experts across diverse fields about how they think the infamous idea of the tragedy of the commons can help tackle big problems of how we govern shared resources. I'm so happy to introduce Dr. Lauren Hall today. Lauren is an Associate Professor of Political Science at the Rochester Institute of Technology. She has written three books, including the 2019 title, The Medicalization of Birth and Death. Her CV includes numerous chapters and publications that explore important social topics from a political science perspective, including families, burial practices, and reproductive rights. And of course, the reason we are chatting today is her 2020 paper called Palliative Care and the Tragedy of the Commons. So welcome, Lauren. Thank you. Is there anything that you want to add to that, or did I miss anything in your bio? Nope, that was great. Perfect. So I'd like to start off by just getting right into uh, the paper that inspired this conversation. Can you give us just a brief overview of what the paper was about? Yeah, so um, I was writing or I was working with um, a bunch of different providers, including some palliative care providers uh, for my book, The Medicalization of Birth and Death, that came out in 2019. And as part of that process, I was just really trying to get information from providers on what they saw as the major barriers to providing high quality care. Um, And so this particular palliative care physician, Randy Hebert, uh, he actually reached out to me while I was in the midst of that research and said, hey, I've actually wanted to write an article Uh, looking at end-of-life care as a kind of tragedy of the commons. And he was actually looking at it from the healthcare resource perspective, which is which is how a lot of people look at it. And maybe we can get into that a little bit later in the podcast. And I started thinking about it more and I said, you know, I think you're right, but I actually think in the end-of-life context, a better way of thinking about it might be, or at least one way of analyzing the problem might be to actually look at the patient as the resource, uh, him or herself. And so that's kind of what we what we started to do. And what we really wanted to look at is, um, you know, why I guess I'll back up a little bit. We have a a problem of um, very expensive, very high intensity care at the end of life that often is not consistent with uh, the best Uh, the best care in general. So we have very high levels of, for example, chemotherapy that's often not necessary. Uh, We give a lot of futile care at the end of life. And all of that care has really serious costs, not just in economic terms, but also in terms of what it does to the human beings themselves. So chemotherapy is literally poison. So if you don't need it, uh, you probably shouldn't have it. Uh, And certainly at the end of life, what a lot of these interventions mean is that you're taking people away from their families, you're keeping them in institutions, when the alternative could be something like hospice care at home or other kinds of care that would give people better, a better opportunity to close out their life chapter than we certainly see in, for example, hospital care. So that's kind of where, where we were starting from was this question of why is it that in the United States context, at least, and this is actually true from what I understand, um, it's also the case in, in Canada as well as Europe, that we, just, we don't do end of life terribly well. But I think it's particularly true in the United States. So what we ended up looking at in the article were essentially, we were looking for structural problems. There's been a lot of analysis of specific interventions like chemotherapy. And we didn't actually want to look at specific interventions. We wanted to look at the structural issues that lead to fragmented care. 
And so what we do in this article is basically sort of analyze the way in which uh, palliative care ends up looking a lot like a kind of tragedy of the commons, and then try to offer some really broad reforms that that you could point to uh, using um, essentially a sort of Ostrom-like framework, which we can talk about later as well. Fantastic. And you've uh, you preempted my question of what inspired you to tackle this issue then, but it sounds like you're just having so many conversations about this and you and a colleague just identified this as a resource governance challenge. Yes. And again, I mean, the other people have, have talked about healthcare in terms of resource governance. Uh, there's actually... Um, a scholar, Michael McGinnis, who has written a couple things. He's at uh, Indiana Bloomington. He's written a couple things on sort of Ostrom in particular and healthcare. Uh, but there isn't actually enough, I don't think, attention paid to the way in which healthcare provision and particular kinds of healthcare problems do appear to be commons problems in important kinds of ways. So that's where I think the um, the article might be helpful for people from both a policy perspective, but also a medical and clinical perspective who are trying to suss out why this why this is happening. Yeah, as a Canadian myself, I certainly can could relate to the topics you were um, discussing in the paper. And I, I think that some of the financial incentives and, you know, billing incentives that you talk to are also relevant in a single payer system like we have here. So it did seem a little bit more universal than just an American experience as well. Um, I really like the way you framed the resource problem in your paper. So I'm just going to read that out for anyone who's listening that hasn't had a chance to read your paper yet. And you write that in this scenario, the patient herself is a resource that's being grazed by various providers precisely because no one provider, quote, owns the broader outcome of appropriate treatment. Overtreatment is common and quality of life suffers. So you're really framing that the patient as a resource that, that everyone has an incentive to use to the, the detriment of the resource, which, of course, is that individual patient. Um, in my own work, uh, I'm my training is in public health, but I study um, commons as I support science and, and medicine myself. And you're absolutely right that I've not read any um, analyses of healthcare commons that look at the patient from that perspective. So that was one thing that I found really interesting about your paper. And I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the insights that you might have gained on how to deal with the issue of, I guess, dealing with the problems of palliative care by framing it in the terms of the patient being the resource. Yeah, one, I mean, so one hesitation we had about using that framework, of course, is that describing providers as appropriators makes it sound like there's sort of a kind of, uh, you know, sort of vulture kind of uh, relationship, right? Um, and I, I don't think in most cases that's what's going on. Uh, from the palliative care physicians and the uh, critical care physicians that I interviewed um, for my own book, and then also talking uh, with Randy, who has a long, long history, he's been in the trenches of palliative care for many years, it's really a coordination problem. So what you have is a single patient um, especially at the end of life, you often have many different competing uh, kind of comorbidities. So you have a, the way that Randy has described it is you have a, you know, your, your kidney doc, you've got your heart doc, you've got your um, cancer doc, and no one's actually really communicating with each other. And so the kidney doc might uh, order a specific set of tests, but that leads to this kind of cascade of interventions that 
interferes with something that the heart doc wants to do, right? And then the heart doc, you know, sends another set of tests in and those come back with specific markers that indicate something completely different. And so because of the way that clinical medicine is structured, particularly in the hospital, there is no final say. Um, And so you get really fragmented and very uncoordinated care. And so my sister is a palliative care nurse practitioner, and she Uh, This is one of her biggest frustrations of doing end of life care, particularly in the hospital, is that she'll work with the patient and their family and, you know, oncology to figure out some kind of plan that makes sense. And then another doctor will come and consult while she's not there and the the plan will go out the window. And so you, you really just have too many cooks in the kitchen to a certain degree. And so again, when we're talking about physicians as appropriators of a patient, um, I want to make it really clear that we're not talking about them as doing this for their own profit, although the, the profit motive does actually come in in some important ways, which, which we can maybe talk about later. But for the vast majority of physicians, they are, they are trying to do their job in their specialty as well as they possibly can. The problem is that the system itself is so fragmented that there's no way of coordinating their behavior uh, with each other. And so this leads to uh, over-appropriation. It leads to too many tests, too many procedures, and eventually we end up with over-treatment, patients getting too much care, and quality of life suffers. In some cases, medical outcomes suffer. I mean, there's a lot of indication that um, too much chemotherapy for cancer patients at the end of life actually shortens their lives. So they're getting less time with family and friends than they would if they got no treatment at all or just palliative treatment. So um, so anyway, it, it really seems to be a sort of coordination problem. And I think, again, I just want to reassure concerned listeners that we're not phrasing, and again, Randy himself is a physician. So we're not talking about physicians as appropriators in the sense of sort of selfish uh, vultures, but we are trying to think about what it means for a patient, particularly a, a very ill patient with a lot of comorbidities uh, to have very, a lot of different providers trying to do a lot of different things at the same time. I actually experienced this a little bit myself in my own um, case of being in the hospital for a ruptured appendix. And between the surgery department and infectious diseases and uh, I guess the other doctors involved in my care, um, they all had kind of slightly different ideas about how to approach it. And I said, it would be nice if you all could talk together at some point and come to a a joint approach because there's often mutually exclusive things that they would tell me. So I imagine when you have the complex outcomes that you're describing in palliative care, becomes even more challenging to coordinate the large number of physicians involved as well. Yeah. And one of the things that we found helpful, we started looking at um, at a lot of Eleanor Ostrom's work to try to look at, again, sort of a broader view of how these how these commons problems can be can be managed. And really what we're pointing to is what economists call non-excludability, which is that no one can sort of exclude other individuals from entering the system. And so anytime, you know, a consult is ordered, a new person enters the enters the room and that person has just as much right to talk to the patient as anyone else. And it's not an easy problem to solve because there's there's sort of two ways in the traditional commons situation, the, tr- the sort of hardened, the, the original um, framing of this issue. You know, the way that you do this is you either privatize the resource, right? You make the patient a single sort of, you make the patient owned by a single provider who excludes all other providers. Well, that's really problematic for patient autonomy. That makes 
calls into question serious issues of potential ethics. But the other solution is sort of to have some sort of public governance structure that oversees right, some sort of bureaucracy. Um, and, and people have talked about managed care and health insurance companies playing that role. And of course, that creates its own ethical problems with uh, interfering with the patient-physician relationship. So it's it's not something that's very easily solved given the limitations that we have in hospitals and given the just the complexity of end of life care itself. Yeah, and I really want to talk more about the the different commons governance's approaches of the different scholars who have worked in this area, but just to um to finish off talking more about the solutions to this challenge that your paper describes you brought up one example of a case that overcame this tragedy, which was Grand Junction, Colorado. And I'm wondering if you can describe this successful example. Yeah. Um, and there's actually been there's been a lot of recent research that is trying to understand how successful Grand Junction has actually been and whether it is sort of the uber success story that, that a lot of people make it out to be. Uh, but what we do know is that Grand Junction went through a series of sort of internal reforms to its healthcare system. It had a pretty elderly population. So they were trying to figure out how to coordinate care and also lower healthcare costs, which is obviously in the United States context, in the Canadian context, a really huge problem, uh, more so in the United States context. So they're trying to figure out how to lower healthcare costs. And they're also trying to figure out how to better coordinate care. And so what, what they ended up doing in Grand Junction, which was so unique, is they sort of stumbled upon an Ostrom solution without quite knowing that they were doing it. So the case of Grand Junction was actually um, a sort of bottom-up reform that was headed by physicians. And essentially what this group of physicians did, it was sort of a group of physician practices that sort of work together and they pooled resources. So one problem within, um, uh, specifically within the U.S. context, and I think this also applies in the Canadian context, uh, is that each physician is paid separately for his or her own contributions. And so there, there is a sort of incentive to do more, right, to sort of balloon out your activity at the expense of other, at the other physicians. I, it's hard to know how much of this is, again, conscious versus just, I mean, we, but we know, in fact, that, for example, oncologists often recommend more chemotherapy than patients actually need and so on and so forth. So financial fragmentation is a really big part of this. And so the financial incentives that come from different physicians wanting to maximize uh, their own um, uh, their own financial um, outcomes. And so Grand Junction sort of got rid of that. They, they pooled resources together. Another really important piece of this is that they, because they were all in the same group together, they, there were these continual interactions that created trust. Uh, but there was also monitoring, which was a really fascinating part of the process. So they had continuous monitoring via chart review. Um, and they also had some outcome and cost data sharing that, that we talk about very briefly in the article. There's a couple of citations in the article that people can can look up about Grand Junction in particular. But that monitoring via those chart reviews and that um, outcome and cost data sharing meant that everyone knew what other people were doing. And that's another real problem in the standard U.S. context, which is that very often a specific test or a specific activity is buried deeply in the chart. You don't know that anyone has actually seen anybody. You don't know what the what the conversation looked like. You actually don't know why a patient changed their mind because you don't know what the conversation that they just had with this other provider was. And so 
the monitoring piece became really crucial because it allowed the physicians to sort of interact with each other and monitor each other and then use peer pressure to maintain those treatment norms. So if there was a physician who was way out in left field, you know, offering chemotherapy to someone who has two weeks left to live, uh, you might look at that and you might say, hey, Paul, you know, or whoever you are, let's talk about this, right? And so there were these opportunities for physicians to monitor each other and then adapt um, as needed. The other really important piece of the Grand Junction experiment was that these were self-imposed. So these were physicians who were imposing these monitoring and other kinds of restrictions on themselves. Uh, They were not imposed from the outside. So this was kind of a self-developed system. It had a lot of buy-in because the physicians themselves had chosen this particular model. It wasn't imposed on them by insurance companies or Uh, the government. And so that really allowed them to be more, there was a more buy-in, but then it also allowed for a little bit more experimentation and flexibility as they determined, you know, what the best way of, of sort of working together was. The end result for Grand Junction was a better coordinated system and lower healthcare costs over overall. The Grand Junction system doesn't look specifically at palliative care because they were really looking at overall healthcare costs in that Uh, in that area. And there's a bunch of caveats that may or may not, you know, there may or may not be variables that made Grand Junction a particularly, you know, an outlier in other kinds of ways. But I think the Grand Junction case is still helpful because it looks at the way in which this kind of self-governance of physicians could operate in a really beneficial way. And the major ways that, of course, that operates are with this collaboration, the integration of different physicians into the same network, and then this monitoring and data sharing so that information is shared very clearly and people are monitored for when they start becoming outliers. That sounds fantastic. And I'm so glad you brought up Ostrom because I wrote down when I was reading that, that what you're describing as their success to me is so in line with Ostrom's design principles for effective commons governance. So I thought that was really fantastic that, um, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because Ostrom's work was, you know, very empirically driven. So it it makes sense that when you see successful examples that it fits within the evidence that she found. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're actually working on a longer paper. The, the paper that you have is a is a pretty short one um, because medical journals uh, tend to not like deep theoretical analysis. Um, so they they were uh, pretty strict on the word count. But we were thinking about doing a longer piece for either some social science or healthcare uh, health policy kinds of journals that would make that Ostrom connection much more clear because I think that is the that's the solution, uh, which is allowing a little bit more freedom for physicians to, uh, and not just physicians, nurse practitioners, all the other providers who do really important patient care and help guide patients along these processes. You need all of those people involved in the process. And in my framework, um, you know, you would have to have family members, you would have to have all these other folks too, who are sort of within this, um, within this framework. I like the Grand Junction case because I think it demonstrates Ostrom's principles so well. And as you say, it's it's accidental and it comes from the fact that she was looking at how people solve these problems. And so you see, this is how people solve these problems. <laughs> and just to bring in um, one thing that you had uh, brought up before with the, the potential profit motives, was that evident at all in the Grand Junction case as well? Like how did profit work into the solutions that they developed? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, yeah, so one of the problems that they had had before they they instituted this reform was that everyone is trying to maximize their own reimbursement under the system. So, um, and and again, this isn't 
you know, I, I want to be very clear uh, because I have a lot of respect for um, for the medical community broadly. We're not talking about sort of greedy doctors, right? We're talking about doctors trying to recoup the costs that they pay for administrators and medical billing and all the other costs that um, occur within a physician's practice. But everybody has an incentive to maximize their payments, especially when it's a third-party payer. So part of what Grand Junction was looking at is, well, how do we maximize our payments from Medicare, for example, uh, which is the primary payer for the elderly in the United States, while still providing really high quality patient care? And what they found is the best way to do that is to pool their payments um, into a kind of bundled payment plan. Uh, There's another group that does something similar that I like. Uh, I also do work in maternity care. And one of the, uh, there's a, it's called the birth bundle in Minnesota, but they solved the problem of midwives and and obstetricians, for example, being competitors by pooling the resources within a, within a maternity care office. And so the, the obstetricians and the midwives would both get paid just in different proportions based on how much care they gave a specific patient. But so they turned it from being an either or kind of payment system to and everybody gets a piece of the pie for providing high quality care. And the other benefit of that kind of system is that it prevents people from pushing patients up escalating care, it keeps patients at the appropriate care level. So if you're a low risk patient, you don't need to see an obstetrician, you can see a midwife. And so they did something similar with Grand Junction, where they pulled these payment resources, everybody got a chunk of, you know, each payment, based on what their interaction was with whatever patient they were talking about. But it, it made it so that you didn't have this zero sum game involved, where if this particular doctor sees the patient, then I lose that Medicare reimbursement. Now, the problem with that approach is that Medicare is really not set up to do that kind of um, that kind of bundled payment system. So even in Grand Junction, they are still dealing with, and I haven't actually looked at the research in the last year or two, so it's possible that there have been changes that I'm not aware of. But even in Grand Junction, they're dealing with the fact that Medicare makes it very, very difficult to pool payments in that way. Medicare wants to pay providers for the specific procedures that that provider does. And that creates a really poor incentive. All of these folks trying to come up with ways around that those poor incentives are doing really good work, but they're always going to be limited by the broader structure of how Medicare incentivizes healthcare payments, right? And it's a very procedure-based payment system. And that makes me really excited uh, to read your bigger paper that pulls in more of the Austrian framework to understanding this, because of course, one of her big component components is the background environment of the institutional structures that inform these mm-hmm. decisions that people make. So uh, I think that's going to be a really fantastic work that you have coming out. Thinking again about the detailed, deep theory that you can't get into in a medical journal, I was really interested reading your paper because when I read, you know, work in ecology or natural resources, I expect people to be familiar with the tragedy of the commons. And I'm just wondering, as a political science, is this a topic that you come across in your training or how did you come across this concept of the tragedy of the commons? I think I had heard about it in a philosophy class. Oh, no, you know what it was? I actually I took a lot of evolutionary theory in undergrad. So my evolutionary theory classes described tragedy of the commons as part of our broader training in game theory. So that's actually my initial, my initial exposure to it. And, but then I didn't really, in my political science training, I had very little exposure to it. Uh, And it wasn't actually until I started discussing some of these issues with 
economists and people who do more interdisciplinary work, like, for example, PPE, what's known as philosophy, politics, and economics in the United States. And some of those more interdisciplinary thinkers were the ones who started really pulling in the tragedy of the commons broadly and then looking at Ostrom's work specifically. So I still remember when I was in grad school, a seminar with the Institute for Humane Studies and David Schmitz, I think, was uh, the was the speaker who was talking about wildlife resource management in Africa. And I found it just completely fascinating. And that was kind of the first time that I really started thinking again about the about how we could understand the commons problem from the perspective of political science. What I think is so crucial as a political scientist is is the way in which it's obviously very important to understand the actual sort of way the game is played, right? How how commons problems exist and the different kinds of things that uh, that structure those interactions. Where my research, where, where, where I was sort of most interested in as a political scientist was understanding precisely that background environment that you mentioned. So what are the limitations that people have on creating these kinds of, these kinds of cooperative uh, setups? And how do the regulations that we have, how do the various kinds of um, insurance policies, how do those either assist or stymie people's ability to create these uh, these cooperative frameworks that that help you know that help allocate resources in a more thoughtful way? As I'm going through preparing for um, episodes and even just identifying who I want to chat with, obviously I'm, I'm very focused on people who are using the phrase "tragedy of the commons" and who are referencing Hardin's paper. But of course, in my own work, I'm drawing from Ostrom's scholarship much more heavily um, because of her empiricism, of course. Mm-hmm. And as, as I'm going through uh, your CV and my database of papers that reference Hardin, um, what what I did notice was that I think this is the first time you've referenced Hardin in any work that you've done yourself. Part of it was that both, so my co-author, Randy, was he was much more interested in the the concept of the tragedy of the commons in the traditional Hardin way. Uh, he had not heard of Ostrom. And I was actually coming at it from the other perspective where I was much more familiar with Ostrom than I was with the uh, with Hardin's paper, for example. And so when I first started writing, I actually wasn't really um, familiar with any of the controversy regarding Hardin's paper or any of the other kinds of uh, pushback that, that it's received since. And then I went back and sort of delved into that but I think one of the things I think is most helpful about Hardin's work is that it just it provides a springboard for thinking about these problems. Not necessarily that he got it right 100%, but that he posed a problem for thinking about uh, how we can deal with these, these issues of resources that are very hard to steward appropriately. And then, of course, I, I think Ostrom... Uh, her work is just fantastic for providing the empirical answer to the the question that Hardin posed. And I think it was quite a different answer than Hardin was expecting. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I really try to keep my own opinions about Hardin's work out of this because I'm coming at it much from the same perspective that you described as I was doing empirical work, drawing on Ostrom's work, and I stumbled across all these references to Hardin. And I, I go back and, and learn about what he did um, in his writing and how it has inspired so much policy um, based on you know zero evidence from a person who's controversial in his views outright. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know my own view is that a lot of people draw, I, I think just from the catchiness of the phrase is what you describe as a springboard for people to talk about the 
these really complex challenges from a, a shared phrase that people resonate with right away. So, you know, regardless of what the tragedy of the commons was as a paper and, and who Garrett Hardin was as a person, that idea is catchy and it gives people a shared understanding to start from to have a lot more in-depth discussions about complex resource governance challenges. And that's kind of the the, the generous way I think about the enduring relevance of the paper that I actually think wasn't a, a good paper at all, but it certainly has made it easier for people to talk about resource governance in some ways. Yes. Yeah. And when I teach, when I teach the tragedy of the commons, there's a couple of classes that this is relevant in. And I, I do a really basic hardened introduction. I don't have them read that paper. Um, so we, we really just lay out the problem, look at sort of cows in the field <laughs> And then jump to let's think about the different ways that you could solve this problem, and then we jump right into to Ostrom. So, like you, I don't think engaging with with his paper in particular is terribly helpful for policymakers or terribly helpful for people who are concerned about these issues. But I think the posing of the problem was really important because it inspired people like Ostrom to take up the challenge. I, I like the way you talk about the concept without referring to Hardin. I think that that's a nice way to, <laughs> you know, we don't have to actually read his paper. We can just acknowledge that this existed and then move on from there. Yeah. Um, and I, I smiled a little bit when you're talking about people who are familiar with the tragedy of the commons, but don't necessarily know about Ostrom's work. And of course, as I've been doing work on this podcast, that's a really common thing that I see is people who refer to tragedy of the commons and have no engagement with Ostrom's work at all. It was so nice to read your work that's actually pulling in some of those empirically based design principles and showing examples of successful governance in a really non-traditional governance situation. So that was a, a really fascinating thing to see as well. This is, by the way, one benefit of I've become more and more interested and more and more convinced that, you know, I, th I think we just need a lot of different lenses on these really complex social problems, because a lot of the work that I was looking at in terms of healthcare policy was, it was very important work, but it was, it was all sort of people looking at very specific kinds of problems or very specific sort of, um, you know, oncology or, you know, very specific sort of specialty specific problems or reimbursement problems or regulatory problems. And one of the things that I wanted to do with my work is just sort of zoom out and really look at those structural problems, right? What are the, what are the background, what is the background environment and how does it prevent people from solving the problems that they want to see solved? And we often talk about healthcare as though it's just this intractable problem. And of course, there's a lot of characteristics of modern healthcare that make it very, very difficult to solve in any kind of, if you can solve a problem like healthcare. But in terms of the resource allocation problem, you really do need both people who are doing the, the close analysis of specific policies, and then you need people who are looking at these background constraints. And so I hope that what some of my work is doing is looking at those background constraints as opposed to, uh, you know, so, so we can fit all the pieces into these broader pictures. That kind of brings me back nicely to something you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation, which was uh, originally when this idea had been brought up to look at it as a tragedy of the commons problem, that it was posed as the healthcare providers oh, being I see. the resources. Yep. Yes. Yeah. So, so there was actually, there were a couple of ways that we could have framed this and we played around with a couple of them. None of them were as, as convincing. None of them fit the model, it seemed to me, as well as the, the thinking about the patient as a, 
um, as a resource. But a lot of people actually, when they talk about the, at least some of the, some of the other research I ran into looks at the um, healthcare system as the commons, right? So you look at the full pool of money, for example, or you can look at it from the provider perspective, either a single provider is the resource and patients come to that provider for various kinds of things. And then the question is, how do you ration access to the provider? And those, I think, are, are valid ways of looking at it. It wasn't quite as helpful for me in the, in the end of life context, because I think part of my, my concern when we were trying to figure out how to formulate this particular paper was I am less concerned about the costs of end-of-life care. I think there's been a ton of really good research suggesting that we spend way too much money at the end of life, and we don't get very good outcomes for it. There's a lot of questions about why that is. There's a lot of questions about how much you can avoid that, given that you don't always know that someone's at the end of their lives. So it's not always clear that you shouldn't provide care and, and those kinds of things. And there's deep ethical problems, obviously, associated with uh, with how to make those decisions for people and with people at the end of life. But from my perspective, the I was much less interested in looking at the resource as being money which is, again, what, what, what some other scholars have done. Because for me, the cost of end-of-life care is not the relevant factor. The relevant factor is, are people getting high-quality, appropriate care at the end of life? And if they're not, then I want to know why. And so we started, so, so we jettisoned the idea of looking at the, the commons as being the pool of healthcare dollars. And then we started thinking, well, maybe it's providers. So maybe we need to think about how people access providers. And, and there's a story there, I think, that you could use this framework in. I mean, you could look at, for example, ER physicians and people's access to the ER as a kind of commons problem, for example, um, emergency room uh, visitation, for example. But again, from our perspective, looking specifically at the problem of palliative care, that really didn't that seemed less helpful to us because you have all of these different providers and it's actually the providers coming to a specific patient that was the problem. So then we just said, wait a second, it's actually the patient who's the resource. And if, if it's the patient that's the resource, then we, then we can actually start looking at this as a, as a coordination problem from that perspective and really trying to see how over-treatment if we're, if we're sort of defining very roughly over-treatment as kind of over-grazing, over-appropriation, then we can start solving that problem of why we get less appropriate care. So we really did, we kind of moved through a couple different models trying to think about how to explain this problem. And the best analytic lens that we, that we came up with was thinking about the patient as the resource uh, uh, herself, and then going from there. And I'm just wondering too, you touched a bit how, you know, this paper really grew out of the book that you worked on, which was, of course, on birth and death. Um, did you see some of these themes come out when you're looking at the, the the birth process as well and the medicalization of that? Yes. Uh, in, in the basic sense that we have a very uncoordinated, very fragmented system of maternity care in the United States, I know some provinces in Canada do it better. I'm not sure how, how universal that is. But in the United States, we have the very odd system of every healthy pregnant woman starts with an obstetrician who's a trained surgeon. That's a really weird, you know, in terms of thinking about what you actually need from a provider, that's a very odd choice. You contrast that with the UK system where most people start with midwives. Um, and I know that's much more common in Canada too. And the problem of course, is that in, in the United States, the, the incentives are, we have a zero sum 
system in most parts of the United States, where if you see an obstetrician, you do not see a midwife. So there's a zero sum, it's a one, it's a binary choice. Whereas if you had some kind of common, like the birth bundle, which I mentioned earlier, it's the Minnesota birth bundle, they try to pool their resources. So you have a maternal fetal specialist who deals with very high risk pregnancies. Uh, You have a midwife, you have a doula, you have all of the providers that any person would need in one bundled payment system. And then those providers see a specific patient and pool their resources and pool their knowledge about that patient into truly integrated care. And so that to me is much more of a sort of commons, an Ostrom solution to the the maternity care crisis in the United States. Again, in the same in the same way as palliative care, though the the Minnesota birth bundle still faces serious problems because Medicaid, which is the program that pays for about fifty percent of pregnancies in the United States, is a very uh, all of the incentives are bad. And that's it's very hard to bundle payments. It's very hard to collaborate with people. They typically don't pay for high quality communication or any communication at all. So there's real serious background constraints in terms of how how midwives and and obstetricians can work together, even in the best case um, in the United States. But I think the maternity care system is another great example of just a, it's, yeah, it's a commons problem. You have, you have a total lack of coordination. There's no monitoring. There's no ability for people to, um, there's another sort of interesting addition, um, which is that it's very difficult to exit. So if you're a laboring woman and you end up at a specific hospital to give birth, There are biological and time constraints that make it very difficult for you to seek out other providers. So you're stuck with the provider that you get. And that also means that there's fewer, you know, there's fewer monitoring possibilities and fewer enforcement possibilities for for people who are real outliers. So some of the obstetricians that I interviewed for the book pointed out that they could have colleagues whose C-section rate was as much as 60%. And they would never know that because there's no monitoring, there's no, there's no information sharing about what other providers are doing. You really have no idea how people are, quote unquote, using the resources of these different patients because there's no, there's no information sharing. And of course, that's one of the major things that Ostrom argues you need to have a, a commons a true common solution is you need you need to start with that ability to you have to have these clearly defined boundaries but then you have to have accurate and relevant information about how people are using that resource and why and we just we have nothing like that that really makes me think of my own work in studying open science in that it's it's built on so many assumptions about practices and very few people actually examine what the practices around data sharing actually are. Mm. So that's I think that's a really um, common issue in managing any type of resource. Thinking about these solutions, your paper is pretty recent, but has it generated any discussion that suggests that maybe things are moving towards some of these effective governance solutions? Uh, it hasn't yet. I will say that um, the timing of both the book and the article was not ideal. Uh, uh, so a global pandemic, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so I actually had some interest right off the bat from various public health folks, and then it just dried up in the midst of this huge crisis, uh, which is, of course, completely understandable. But it's been frustrating to me to see how a lot of the conversations that we were having in January, February about, for example, disparities in healthcare. Uh, there was a whole conversation about 
racial disparities in care in maternity care, for example. Uh, my book also looks at uh, racial disparities in palliative care and end-of-life care. And so there were all of these really interesting and important conversations that were sort of just starting in January and February. And then the rest of two, uh, 2020 just became this um you know, COVID-19 just dominated every every sector of public health uh, for, again, understandable reasons. So I'm hoping that that as the vaccine comes out, we'll have a much better opportunity to really start delving into some of these questions. And I'll also say that the, that the pandemic really exposed a lot of these resource allocation problems and even more stark relief. It's not that um, we had this global pandemic and all of a sudden everybody started to get along. In fact, palliative care became even more sidelined in some ways during the COVID pandemic. You had people who were going from perfectly healthy to at death's door in a week. And you have families who are completely scattered. They're not able to see their loved ones. You've got physicians struggling with PPE limitations and trying to coordinate multiple critically ill patients at the same time. You have overwhelmed ICUs. And so if anything, the problems that we're describing in this article got significantly worse during the COVID era. And so I'm, I think that this could be an, you know, an important public health moment to start thinking about ways in which we could really use some of these, some of these frameworks to find a more coordinated system of care that would provide better care for people both in the normal times, but also in these extreme sort of health crises that we've been facing. Yeah, you know, when you were talking about, um, when you brought up the pandemic, it made me wonder about how those themes linked in with what's going on in the world right now. So I'm, I'm really glad you described that in more detail. Is there anything else that you wanted to share about the paper or just your thoughts about the tragedy of the commons and commons governance in general? I guess the only thing I would say is I feel like this is an area, one real disappointment of my of my political science degree was that we we just didn't read Ostrom. We didn't she's a political scientist. We should own her. Right. Uh, but the only people I actually know who really talk about her or do, a, do work in, in a lot of her, um, her areas are primarily economists. I know that there are, there are some, some political scientists who are doing work in this area, but I, I think she's just such an important thinker for a lot of the really pressing social problems that we're, uh, that we're looking at. And I'm, a lot of my other research in political theory is very interested in the concept of spontaneous orders and how people create order within um, within systems without a central authority. And so for me, sort of rediscovering her uh, was a really um, a really important part of this research. And then I think you know there's a lot of other a lot of other social um, issues that we can apply her to. So uh, we all need to read more of her, I guess. I think that's a great note to end on. And I've been reading so much of, of Garrett Hardin's work lately. And I read it kind of like people read tabloids. Like it's it's kind of trash and that's why I love it. Um, but yeah. Ostrom just, you know, fills my academic soul. She's so, she's so insightful and she's such a skilled empiricist. And she's so rooted in evidence, and it just makes me feel good about academia when I read her work. So people should definitely read more of Ostrom. And she's inspiring, and she's funny. I love watching interviews with her and mm -hmm. the way she speaks about her work. So, yeah, that's an, an excellent note um, to end on. But I also wanted to ask if there's anything you're working on right now that you wanted to, to plug or you think that listeners might be interested in. I think the biggest thing, I mean, I'm doing a couple things on um, just continuations of work that I was doing for the book. So really, if, if people are interested in looking at the broader systemic 
problems with American healthcare. Uh, I think there's a lot of sort of commons problem issues that that are highlighted within the book. Uh, it's called the medicalization of birth and death. Other than that, I'm, I'm sort of looking to again expand on this uh, palliative care article with the, the the longer analysis using Ostrom, but uh, that's that's not out yet. So for now, just hang in there. I think we're all just trying to survive the the end of COVID and the on <laughs> the uh, the oncoming vaccines, and and hopefully get back to normal when we can start doing more interesting projects. I guess absolutely. I think all of us are just really trying to hold tight and get get back to normal. And of course, COVID goes on, but people are still being born and people are still dying. So we can't forget about all those other challenges. Well, this has been a really fantastic conversation. I'm so glad you're able to join me today. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Thank you so much for having me, Janice. This was fantastic. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more, you can find links to articles and other things we mentioned in the episode at nocommons.ca forward slash podcast. You can also find me and the show on Twitter at at NoCommons. If you'd like to suggest a paper to feature, drop me a note on my website contact page. And of course, please consider subscribing to No Commons wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.